Supper Sunday, Lord's Supper Sunday, we keep K-4 through in here with us the whole time, so just a reminder of that, not so that you will stay home and watch on the live stream, just so that you'll be prepared to come and participate in the Lord's Supper and to have the kids with you. So Romans 13 is where we'll be this morning. If you want to open your Bible there, we will not be back in the book of Acts, Lord willing, until uh, the month of January. When we come into the new year, we will jump back into Acts, but we're going to be in Romans 13 this month, and then uh, we will be in the Psalms for the Advent season. Uh, Crazy to think that we are pretty much one month away from our, our first Advent Sunday, so if that doesn't get the, you know, maybe, maybe that causes some of you a little bit of shopping anxiety. Uh, some of you, you're ready to sing carols. Maybe you already are. You have lights hanging from your house. I don't know. But uh, regardless, the time is coming. On January 20th, 2021, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. became the 46th president of the United States of America to take the presidential oath of office. As he took the oath, He placed his hand on his family's 19th century heirloom Bible that he had used for oaths throughout his years of political office. Not every president has done this, by the way. Most have, but not all. George Washington set the precedent. It's a solemn act. With a hand on the Bible, the president says, I do solemnly swear, or affirm, depending on the wording that they choose, that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. We won't pretend that every man who has placed their hand on a Bible and taken that oath is a born-again, regenerate believer, but we can still confidently speak to what the hand on the Bible implies, can't we? It's a portion of the ceremony that acknowledges that the person who sits in the chair in the Oval Office is held accountable to a higher authority, to a divine authority that is above and beyond themselves, who is outside of themselves. What is implied is that the authority would not belong to them. They would not sit in that office had not God granted that authority. An authority he grants to the magistrate, to the governor, to the president, to the king, to the emperor, to the ruler, in his word. They're taking an oath that they're going to steward this power well. They're going to uphold the constitution that has seen to their election. Now, do they understand all of that? I'll leave that for you to decide. But as Christians who come in here on Sunday mornings and we do strange things, right? We we sing songs. Some of us may even put a paw in the air as we do it. We talked yesterday at the Pillar Hampton Roads Conference about how strange unbelievers find us when they they come and they see us sipping from our our little juice cups and eating our little, little crackers, I'm saying that this is a deeply, deeply spiritual thing commanded by the creator of the universe. We open the Bible and we sit here and we listen to this bald guy get up and talk for 40 minutes every week. You say, well, why? Why do you do all these things? Because the word of God tells us to. Because we believe that the Bible is the life and the authority of the people of God. 
That is our relationship to the Word. It is our life. It is our authority. We are submissive to it. But what do we make of the state? What do we make of the commander-in-chief standing there with his hand on our Bible? What is his relationship to it? And what is our relationship to him? And is he on our side since he's touching our Bible? And since he's touching our Bible, the same way that I'm touching a Bible right now, does he have authority in this church? These are the sort of questions that have been asked, really, we can say, for 2,000 years. They were certainly asked by the reformers and not always answered in the right way. They were asked by American believers during the COVID pandemic of the early 2020s, just like they were asked by American believers during the Spanish flu pandemic from 1918 to 1920. They were asked by Christians living in Rome in the first century, which is why we'll spend our time in Romans 13 over the next month. You might wonder, why take a break from Acts and do this? Don't we hear enough about this business on the news? I mean, come on. Right? It's everywhere, all the time. Well, I think that many Christians struggle to understand the relationship between church and government. And I think a lot of Christians struggle with, what am I even supposed to do in this culture? As a citizen of God's kingdom, living in this kingdom, what am I supposed to do? And how do I relate to the state that is ruling over the culture and setting so many ways of the culture? Romans 13 addresses these issues, and I think it's important for us to address them, especially considering what's on the horizon. This year we have an election season going on. I've brought with me, this was just yesterday, I got home from the Pillar Hampton Roads Conference and had not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six. No, no, it was six. There was a seventh, but it was the five-minute oil change people. That's who, that's who it was. So, no, six. Six just yesterday. Six mailers just yesterday. All of them, if, I, I'm, just not, I'm not trying to bash them one way or the other. I'm not trying to say anything. Just, all of them are Danny Diggs. All six Danny Diggs. I was like, I mean, maybe five, maybe four would have sufficed. I don't know. Got to get that sixth one in there. We're all getting bombarded by this stuff, but I have a hunch that it will be slightly more testy this time next year. Local elections are one thing, but by this time next year, when we're dealing with a 2024 presidential election, some of you will have blocked half of your friend list on Facebook. Others of you will have had it out with your coworker or your aggressive uncle. Most will just grimace and go, please let it end. That's what most of you are doing right now as you get those mailers out of your box every day. I have to imagine the 2024 election will be as heated and as fiery as ever considering what's going on around the world and you will be told, just like you were told in every election, that everything is at stake. Everything is at stake in this election. And so how are we to respond to these things? What should our attitude be as believers? How are we to live in days such as these? I think it's wise for us to turn to Romans 13 in a year where we're getting six mailers for the local election 
And we seek God's leading as opposed to trying to do it in the middle of the storm next year. This will not be a sermon series about how evil, liberal, political ideologies are. And this will not be a sermon series about how evil, conservative ideologies are. I might point out some idols that the church is in danger of bowing down to on both sides of the aisle along the way. But partisan politics really isn't the point here. It's about being a faithful witness, fulfilling the Great Commission, and being a persevering church. And understanding how we relate to those who God has given authority. Particularly when it comes to those who are a part of the state. This morning we're just going to focus on the origin and the purpose of government. Next week we'll get into the, the redemptive kingdom and talk about that a bit. It's really not going to be until the third week that we get into the nuts and bolts of how we live in the here and now as Christian people representing the kingdom of God in the kingdom of man. A little context on Romans 13, Paul is writing to believers in Rome who are living in the midst of governmental transition in their world. And it's the sort of transition that you don't want to experience. Because Rome was going from being a republic to becoming what resembled more of a monarchy. Emperor Nero was after unilateral power. And he had his hands on quite a bit of power. He got it because his mother killed his father for him. Poisoned his father for him. Heck of a way to come into office. And under this man, persecution against Christians and Jewish people, it was pervasive. And taxes soared to an oppressive level. Many of the Jewish Christians living in Rome were not so eager to submit to this Roman government. They understood the Messiah to be a political figure who was going to physically rule the nations forever with a rod of iron, just like Psalm 2 promises. And we understand that to be true, absolutely. But when they considered that, they said, well, why should we submit to these Romans? If King Jesus is on his throne and one day he will return and he will rule the nations, well, then I'm not too interested in being subject to Caesar That's the political context Paul's speaking into in Romans 13. Romans 13 falls in the application portion of the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 11 are about as close to a systematic, full outline of Christian doctrine as you're going to get in the New Testament. It's not a systematic theology, it's a letter, but it's as close as you're really going to get. And in it, Paul unpacks the full counsel of the gospel, and and, and he unpacks its theological framework with a concise brilliance. And then as you get to chapter 12, there is a turn in the way that Paul speaks. He begins to uh, go from teaching this wonderful theology to applying this wonderful theology. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. His appeal is based on all that theology from chapters 1 through 12, or 1 through 11. He's saying to them, in light of everything that I have just said to you, therefore present yourself as a living sacrifice. Romans 13 falls in the midst of the application portion, and it doesn't come out of nowhere. Paul is telling believers in Romans 12 how they are to live in the world. 
with these short kind of staccato commands. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And Paul is building on this principle in speaking to how the Christian relates to the governing authorities. So Romans 13, and I know this is a little different uh, for us, but I've been convicted about this for like two months and haven't done it. And so we're going to do it this morning. Let's stand together as we read this text that will be, uh, that, that we'll learn from, our, our, our teaching text for today. Let's stand in honor of God's word, if you're able. If not, that's okay, totally understand that. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Father God, this is your living and active word, and I pray that it would do its work in your people. We trust that it will. I pray, Father, that the burning heat of persecution and the thorny cares of this world would not be able to choke out or to snuff out the living faith, Lord, that you want to work in people's hearts through your word. And I pray that your word would produce fruit in people's hearts this morning, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, as you have appointed We love you, Lord, and we look to you to bless the words you have spoken. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. Paul starts by saying, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, but I actually don't want to start there. Let's just start with the governing authorities themselves. Before we even talk about how we interact with governing authorities, let's just talk about where do they even come from? How did they get here? Well, first of all, they are from God. And we know that because Paul says there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 2 that if you resist this governing authority that is in place, you're actually resisting authority appointed by God. When you resist those authorities and you are punished, that judgment's coming upon you because you have rebelled against the authority that God has placed in the hands of the state. The idea is repeated one more time in verse 4, where Paul calls the government God's servant for your good. Later in the verse, he says that the one in authority is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so it is beyond argument that the New Testament views the governing state to have its origin in God and its authority and its purpose comes from God. And so teaching point number one this morning, if you're taking notes, all governing authorities are appointed by God. We see this in the first couple of verses and in verse four. All governing authorities are appointed by God. So the question is, is when did God do this? And why did God do this? And to understand this, maybe we need to go back to the beginning, take a look at Adam, take a look at Noah, look look at the covenants that God is expressing his saving purposes through. And in those covenants to humanity, 
we can actually begin to understand how government came from God. And we see his purpose for it. When we talk about government, we have to start with God's government. God rules the earth. He governs the earth. He reigns over the earth. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. In Psalm 145, verse 13, the Bible says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So there is nothing in all of existence that does not fall under God's rule. Society, the arts, family, industry, the milk that you spilled this morning, and certainly the government. He's ruling and reigning over all of it. And as the ruling creator of the universe, God chose in his good pleasure to create man in his image and to give human beings certain responsibilities. Genesis 1, verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue the earth. Have dominion over the earth, Adam. And so Adam, representing all of humanity... He is our federal head, our representative. He is given commands that establish the foundation for culture as you and I know it. Husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, agriculture, all this is instituted by God's blessed command. And Adam is like a king who's been placed on the earth to run the world in God's place. Not that God has removed himself from the equation, but Adam is like his vice regent. Scott Annual, who has spoken here, is a professor to Pastor Ben uh, in seminary, and he's come here and he's done a workshop here, wrote a wonderful book on this subject and, uh, called Citizens and Exiles. And in that book, Dr. Annual says, God chose to rule the world through a man. And in Genesis 1, we meet that man. His name is Adam. Then we get to Genesis 2. We see more detail regarding the work of Adam. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So he's going to work and keep the garden. Now this language of work and keep is priest language. It's Levitical language. It is the way the priests are spoken of in the Torah again and again. They kept the law and they offered spiritual service to God. In other words, in the same way that the priests would work in the temple, and they would keep the temple, and they would go about their acts of priestly worship to God, Adam is to work and to keep the garden as an act of priestly worship to his maker. In other words, God places Adam on earth to be a king priest. You got that? A kingly priest who would bear his image, who would rule the world in his place, worshiping him day and night. It was designed to be a perfect marriage between dominion and worship, governing and reverence, the perfect marriage of king and priest. So this is the covenant that God makes with Adam. Adam, if you are this king priest, 
and you fill this earth and you multiply. Adam, if you, if you work and keep the garden, well, you will enter into rest. I will be your God and you will be my people forever. You will enter into rest with me, Adam. Just as God worked and created and he rested on the seventh day, there is this expectation that Adam will get to rest in God if he fulfills the covenant. Then he will be blessed. But you and I know that he did not fulfill the covenant. He failed in the covenant. He ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He disobeyed God. And God told him, if you eat of this tree, you're going to die. Well, Adam ate of the tree. He disobeyed God. He fails in the covenant. And as a result, a curse is pronounced. Adam doesn't immediately die, but he will eventually die. That God's grace and mercy may abound, he gives Adam days in between the, the sin and the curse and ultimately his death. But when the curse is pronounced, there's a promise in it. The Lord God said to the serpent, Genesis 3.14, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the fields. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Now listen to this. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. The heel is not a fatal blow, the head is. Just keep that in mind. To the woman he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. A lot of curse there, but in the midst of it, there is this promise that a child will come from from Eve. A child will come from the woman, and that child will have his heel bruised by the, the deceiver of the garden. But if you go outside today, and you have your heel bruised, you'll be okay. You could cut your heel badly, you'll be okay. But if something happens to your head, we're having different conversations. Everybody knows the head must be protected. You get on a, you get on a motorcycle, you start going down the road. We don't talk about, uh, as much about footwear as we do about what goes on the head. Because we know that if you are struck a fatal blow to the head, you are done. Well, the blow here comes to the head. Eve's child will step on the head of the deceiver in the garden. But it doesn't happen right away. After the fall, the world is chaotic and sinful, isn't it? We have brother murdering brother. The thoughts of humanity are hopelessly sinful. Genesis 6, verses 5-7. through The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And the Lord floods the earth. Now prior to the flood, there are these moments of God's gracious and merciful hand giving us hints of what we know is government. 
For example, in Genesis 4, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch, and, uh, and then when he had built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And so Cain builds a city. And that hints at some form of societal structure coming about. God's grace is certainly being injected in that situation. Otherwise, people uh, would just destroy themselves. Cain and his family would destroy themselves. There would be no city. But it's not until after the flood that God institutes human government for the common kingdom of man in plain language. So if you want to say, well, where is the origin of the state as we know it? I would say it's Genesis 9. Genesis 9, verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. And to your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Notice that in this covenant with Noah, God repeats the words of Genesis 1, 28. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Have kids, Noah. Noah's kids, you have kids. Work the ground. But notice what's not there in the covenant with Noah. There's no command to have dominion over the earth. That's a command that was given to Adam as our representative, but he failed in that. And because of his failure, we are all born separated from God, dead in our sins. And listen, we are unable to exercise dominion over creation. We can't rule the world the way God designed us to. We're not perfect. We're fallen. And yet God is merciful toward his creation. And so in this covenant, he promises to preserve his worlds. He will never flood the earth again as we fill it up. So he will preserve nature and those who live in it. And part of the way he is preserving it is not just by saying, I won't flood the earth, but by saying, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Meaning, God does not only preserve the world by not destroying it, he's establishing government in the world to preserve the life of men who live in it. That's what you're seeing in the Noahic Covenant. The sword, capital punishment, will be placed in the hand of man to keep man from destruction. I'll go to Dr. Annual again. He says, God gave this responsibility to govern the world and its people once again to all humankind as a means through which God would sovereignly control man's sinfulness and preserve the world and its order until the second Adam would establish his reign as the perfect king-priest. There's going to come a day, praise God, when Christ returns to the earth and he will establish his perfect rule and reign as the second Adam. 
that marriage between dominion and worship, it will be together again. But until then, Adam's kingly role in the garden carries on in the form of government. Until the perfect government of Christ comes, God has given us imperfect human government to keep us from ripping ourselves apart. The magistrate, which is how the 1689 London Baptist Confession refers to the state. The magistrate, the state, it's a hockey referee that keeps everybody from using their blades and their sticks to kill each other during the game. And when somebody does something that they shouldn't do, and they are threatening the peace of the game, and they're, they're, they're causing those in control of the game to go, wait a second, everybody might rip each other apart here. Well, we're going to have to put that guy in the penalty box, aren't we? This is the role that we see God giving the state in society. And this is a part of God's common grace to all human beings that live in the common kingdom of man. You live in the common kingdom of man. I live in the common kingdom of man. We are all a part of this earthly society, believer and unbeliever alike. And God, in his mercy, has certain graces that he allows everybody in the common kingdom to enjoy. Believer and unbeliever. Matthew 5.45, Jesus speaks to this when he says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He also gives the sword of the government to the evil and the good. He gives the preserving sword of the government to the just and the unjust. The state is a common grace blessing to all of us to preserve our lives, and it is the imperfect way in which humanity is carrying out Adam's garden activity until the perfect government of Jesus comes. All human government has been put in place by God for these purposes. And it is an evidence of his mercy toward his world. You will meet people who subscribe to a purely secular humanistic worldview that removes God from his rightful place as the creator and relegates humanity into being nothing more than evolved animals. And they will claim otherwise about government. They will say government did not come from God. Government's a human uh, invention. It just came about through the evolution of culture and society. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, speaking to this back in the early 60s, said, The state and government, magistrates and so on, are not a human invention. They are not a human desire or device. In spite of the views of so-called leading authorities, we assert from the scripture that men and women have not evolved from animals, and neither have their culture and government. The evolutionary view will tell you that humanity has gradually thought these things out, that they have evolved as a result of trial and error. That is quite wrong. Government is not an accidental reality. It is not a necessary force invented by human beings after generations of evolution by chance. It is a tool employed by God for the purpose of safeguarding his creation. And what this reveals to us is the purpose that God has for government. It preserves humanity. We see this in the Noahic Covenant. We see this in Paul's writing this morning. Rulers are, he says, a terror to bad conduct. God has not put the state in place to conjure up righteousness, but to curb unrighteousness. 
Their job is to preserve. Therefore, a good ruler will approve of what is good because what is good doesn't harm society. It does not transgress their purpose of preserving society. So the government then should be God's servant for your good, carrying out the wrath of God on the evildoer. They serve goodness by combating evil doing. That is preservation. So teaching point number two this morning, all governing authorities are appointed for preservation. All governing authorities are appointed for preservation. And we really see this in verses three and four. A passage we can set up next to Romans 13 when discussing the New Testament and its teaching on government would be 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, where Paul, writing to his son in the faith, says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So Christian, why do you pray for kings? Why do you pray for your president? Why do you pray for the sheriff? Why do you pray for the governor? As we're going to do at the end of our service today. Why do we do these things? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. That's the opportunity that the preserving force of government is designed to provide for the citizens. A tranquil life in which godliness is able to be pursued and love can abound. It's the life that Paul describes in chapter 12, verse 18, when he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. God appoints the state to limit the evil of humanity, which threatens this life. That is why Paul says in Romans 13.3 that rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. The sword of the state limits the effects of depravity. If you think the world is bad, if you think what you see going on in Palestine and Israel is bad, and Russia and Ukraine is bad, and what's going on down the street is bad, you can only imagine what this society would be like without God's servant for good, the government. God uses the threat of the state's sword to warn us and then to punish us if we transgress the laws that are designed to provide the peaceful and quiet life. If everybody drove down Seaford Road going whatever speed they felt like going, which some do, be it 20 miles an hour or 80, right? The, the 80 always seems to happen with like a really, really loud car at like 11 at night. The 20 seems to happen at 2 in the afternoon on a Thursday, right? But if everybody just said, I don't care about speed limits, I'll drive whatever pace I want to drive at all times, what would the road be like? It wouldn't be peaceful and it wouldn't be quiet. The laws are there to provide a peaceful and quiet life. And God uses the sword to warn those who would threaten it. Now when Paul speaks about the peaceful and quiet life in 1 Timothy 2, he's speaking about the life of Christians. That's true. That's not a letter written to unbelievers. It's written to a Christian pastor. So he's speaking about Christians. We should pray that the state would operate in such a way that Christians can live a peaceful and quiet life. You say, well, what about all the unbelievers who are also living in the common kingdom of man, experiencing the mercies of of government? What about them? Well, a society in which Christians can pursue a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, is a society in which others can be law-abiding citizens in a free world. 
After all, it's the Christian worldview's influence on society that brought an end to the institution of the transatlantic slave trade. What Christians prayed against and said no to in that situation was to the benefit of the entire society. Another example would be the constitutional religious liberty that we experience and enjoy here in the United States of America. That is a freedom that finds its roots in the Christian worldview. And yet, it is to the benefit of different religious people all over this country who can practice their faith without harassment. Wherever you find governments allowing Christians to pray more, give more, preach more, congregate more, sing more, serve more, evangelize more, minister more, you'll find the societies better off. You'll find a society in which the unbeliever can live a peaceful and quiet life. The negative way to state the government's purpose is to say that it limits evil with the sword, but the positive way is to say it should promote the welfare of everyone by providing a pathway to a life of peace and to a life of tranquility. But whether you say it positively or you say it negatively, the bottom line is that the Lord has chosen to rule over the global common kingdom of humanity with human rulers, sometimes unbelieving human rulers. In fact, we would say that's the case most of the time. And yet, since God has chosen to preserve the world through these imperfect human rulers, what Paul is telling us is that these rulers are God's servants. They might be unbelievers, but God has them doing his bidding. Peter even goes so far as to say they are sent by God when he says, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. When they justly bear the sword against evil, God is carrying out the punishment himself through the state. That's why Paul says, the avenger carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. Now, we go back to the beginning this morning. What is our relationship to the sword-bearing servant that is the state? And when I say our relationship, I'm not talking about the church as a whole, because those are two different conversations, and we mess that up all the time. All the time, we want to take Romans 13 and say the entire institution of the church needs to submit to the government, and that's not what this passage is about, and we'll talk about that next week. This is about individual Christians. It's about how Ben Little uh, interacts with the state. It's how I interact with the state. It's how Karen Hare interacts with the state. Tim Gardner interacts with the state. Not how the entire church as an institution interacts with the state. But we'll go there next week. I'm going to start preaching on that. Reel it back in. All right. What you have here... Is about how the individual relates to the sword. Let every person, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. So Christian, you are to be subject to the state. What does that word mean? A lot of people think it means obedience. We are to obey the governing authorities. But is that really what Paul is saying? Is he saying that we just have mechanical obedience to the governing authorities? Hey, you got the sword, I do what you say. Well, a couple things. First of all, the New Testament writers generally use one of three Greek words when they want to talk about obedience. And Paul does not use any of those words here. Secondly, the same word that translates to subject here is used in Ephesians 5.21, and there it translates to submission or submitting. Ephesians 5.21, 
talks about how in the local church we should be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Just try to put obey in there and see if it works. Do we obey one another out of reverence for Christ? No, that doesn't make any sense. So we shouldn't say that. And we shouldn't say that Christians obey the government. It's not the way that Paul is talking. Instead, we should say that Christians are submissive to the government. Subject to the government. That's what Paul's talking about when he says to Titus in Titus 3, remind them, talking about the church that Titus is pastoring, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. It's what Peter talks about when he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. After the flood, the Lord instituted human government as a blessing to restrict evil and to praise good on the earth. This is a part of his preserving love to the common kingdom of man. And now as believers, we seek to be submissive to that institution. We subject ourselves to the authority of the state. This is who we are as Christian people. And it's really not even just with the state that we're this way. The Lord has conquered our rebel hearts. He has granted us salvation by grace. We never could have earned it on our own. It's in Christ alone to the glory of God alone as we've been talking about today. That is a humbling thing. And that humility should bring you low. And, and, and when you are low, you can be submissive. Submissive to one another out of reverence for Christ. Not thinking that my preference is more important than your preference. Submissive to your pastor. The Bible says that is for your joy and it is also for mine. That is for your joy and it's also for Pastor Ben's. Wives submissive to their husbands. Employers uh, have employees that are submissive to them. Christian citizens should also be submissive to the governing authority. In the same way that we seek to be submissive in all these other ways that the Bible calls us to be, we are submissive to the governing authority. And so, number three, and finally this morning, all Christians are to be subject to all governing authorities. If a governing authority has been placed over uh, over you, you're to be subject to it. But we don't use the word obey. At least not mechanical obedience. And that is because there may be many times in which we simply cannot obey. Now, do we remain submissive in our spirit? Absolutely. That is our longing. Our longing, understanding the purpose of government and that God put it in place. Our longing is to be subject to a government that rightly bears the sword that God has put in their hand. But if the government is requiring something of us that we simply cannot adhere to, well then we cannot be obedient, which is why we don't just say uh, uh, unilaterally across the board that we are obedient to governing authorities as Christians. There are times in which we can't be obedient. Because the, the government steps outside of the purpose God created it for and starts to create laws that restrict the gospel, that restrict Christian ministry. See an example of this in Acts 4 when the ruling council tells Peter, the same guy, by the way, who wrote to uh, the dispersed Christians and he, in his letter said, be subject to every human institution. He and John get dragged into this ruling council and say, they tell him, you can't preach in the name of Christ anymore. And so here's the response of Peter and John. 
Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. There's no rebelliousness in that. There's no obstinance in that. There's no lack of respect in that. But they cannot obey commands that go directly against the commandments of Christ. They have been told to be witnesses and fishers of men. Therefore, they cannot obey. If Caesar or anybody Caesar sins tells them to stop preaching, they cannot obey. In their spirits, they long to be submissive to the sword, but they cannot obey. And the theological reason is that God is still the ruler of the universe. In his common grace toward humanity, he has instituted imperfect human rulers to rule on the earth until the perfect government of God's Son comes. But that does not mean that the government that exists now is not accountable to God. He's the one that put all the governmental offices in place. They are meant to be a preserving extension of his loving and good rule. Therefore, every ruler is subject to the moral law of the God who put them in place. The question is, Christian, what do we do when governments and leaders and those in high places cast off their accountability and they rule with evil intentions? What happens when they bomb innocents for economic purposes? Economic and political purposes. It really doesn't have anything to do with preserving like a, a peaceful way of life for you and I or restricting evil. It's just about money. What do we do? What happens when the state taxes beyond the ability of the people to pay? What happens when they mercilessly slaughter babies? Should Christians who are subjecting themselves to the authority of the state seek to change the state? Well, that's a complicated question, and I've got about three minutes left, so I'm not going to dive too deep into it, because as you go from society to society and government to government and context to context and what the different persecutions were, the conversation changes a bit. So if we're talking about Bonhoeffer and Hitler, we're having a little bit of a different conversation than you and Biden, all right? That's just the reality. But let me just say this. In the United States of America, we do have a way to change the state. We serve a God who moves the pieces of history in and out of positions at his will. And he, in his sovereign wisdom, has placed you at this moment in time in a constitutional republic where you can vote people in and out of office. So if you're out of sorts about your governor or your magistrate or your senator or congressman or congresswoman or president failing to uphold the moral law of the God who appointed them, you know what to do. Get to the polls. Vote. Try to change it. Write letters. Make phone calls. Go up to the school board and share your opinion. Get down on your knees and pray before you do any of that. Pray for everyone in high positions, even the people you didn't vote for. And you complain about all the time. You should complain less and pray more. But at the end of the day, our attitude toward government should be one of subjection, not rebellion, even if we would seek to see change there. Rebelliousness simply is not the Christian position toward the state. It's not blind obedience, but it's also not angry rebelliousness. Instead, it is Christ-honoring subjection. 
We should honor our leaders. We should pray for our leaders. We should respect our leaders. And we should follow all of their laws that we can. And we should put ourselves under them and submit to them. And we should seek to do good in their societies. And this will be ultimately for our good. 1 Peter 2 verse 14. To the praise of those who do good. The government praises the one who does good. And our hope, of course, is not that they'll, they'll praise us. We, we hope they will look straight through us and past us, don't we? We hope that we will do good in this society. So, for example, we hope that the government here looks at us and says, that's Seaford Baptist Church. Look at how they just open their parking lot up five days a week. We've got all these cars coming through, hundreds of cars coming through, picking their kids up from school, just using their parking lot, wear and tear on their pavement right? Inconvenience, all those sorts of things. Look at them doing that. And I've had the government come to us and say, thank you. They've thanked us. The superintendent's been in the parking lot and has shaken my hand and said, your neighborhood will not forget what you were doing. And what I told her and what I would tell anyone who would be willing to listen is we don't do this for us. It's not about us. It's not about the parking lot. Look straight through all of this and see Jesus. That's what it's about. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We hope that they would see the good that we do and they would look right through us and they would just see our Father who is in heaven and they would see Jesus whom he has sent. So we can't say, Christians, that God has left us guessing. Just the opposite. He has spoken clearly to us on these matters. He's giving clear instructions in Romans 12 on how you should live in the world. And these are things that I think, as I just go through these real quick, I think you're going to want to obey all these. I think you're going to be like, yeah, I want all that. If you're a Christian person, your heart should flutter as I read these things. You should be going, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want to live that out. That's me. Yes, please God. Genuine love. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another like brothers. Outdo each other in honor. Don't be lazy in zeal, but have a passion to serve the Lord in your spirit. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Be constant in prayer. Meet the needs of your brothers and sisters. Open your lives to one another. Bless those who persecute you. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be found with the humble. Live peaceably with everyone. Love your enemy. That's all things that Paul commands Christians to do at the end of Romans 12. And on the heels of these commands, he looks at these Roman Christians under the thumb of the authority of domineering Nero, and he says, be subject to the governing authorities. And so just as much as genuine love is a part of your Christian duty, being subject to the governing authorities is part of your Christian duty. We'll talk about the church as a whole next week. When we get to verses 5 through 7, we've talked about the common kingdom this morning, but what of the redemptive kingdom? We will get into that next week. As the band comes, though, I just want to make one final point about the purpose of government. We've seen where it's come from this morning in Genesis 9. We see the purpose of it, restraining evil, providing the opportunity for a peaceful and quiet life. But, but listen, imagine as, if, as the band comes... I said, I thought he was going to use the piano, so I'm going to use this guitar. But imagine if as the band comes, I said, I have so much faith in this guitar right here, in its strings, 
and its little tuning knobs and, 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 and the pickup and, and, and all of the hardware that's going to get the sound from here to out to you all. And I've got faith in, in, in everything that's going on here, the bridge, everything. I've got faith in this guitar to lead us this morning. As the pastor of this church, I have full hope in this guitar to lead us in worship. Let's stand and sing. You would be like, what? Of course that's ridiculous. And I'm being ridiculous. But that ridiculousness represents the great tragedy of the American political idol. How many people, Christians included, are putting their hope in government to fix all their problems? In doing this, they are putting their hope in a tool. A tool that God is using to preserve humanity. Of course, the truth is is that I don't have hope in a guitar to lead us. First of all, I have hope in the Spirit of God, but I have hope in our worship pastor. I have hope in our musicians, and I have hope in our AV team. I don't have that much hope in the sound system right now, but we're working on that. We're working on it. The bottom line is, I know the guitar is just a servant. It's a tool being used by those who are actually in control. Government preserves your life. It exists to provide a peaceful and quiet life for you. But listen to me, it cannot preserve your soul. It can't make your soul great again. It cannot quiet your conscience. Only God, the appointer of government, can do that. And He has sent His Son Jesus to give all the answers to every question that your soul is asking. Government cannot forgive your sin, but Christ can. Turn away from your sin and put your faith in the one who died on the cross for you. Turn to him in faith. Government cannot save you from God's wrath, but Christ can. Trust in the one who died in your place. Government cannot bring you eternal victory, but Christ can. He rose again and he has ascended on high. He has disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he has defeated sin and death on your behalf. Turn from your sin and believe not in government and put your hope not in government but in the one who put it in place. Put your hope in God and in his son Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for government. We laugh at the six mailers I've got up here, Lord. Not talking about unimportant things in these mailers. There's important things that are being discussed. The lives of human beings being one of them. God, we get these mailers and they come in and we see the stuff on the news and we can get so bogged down in just corrupt people and lobbyists and all the nastiness. It's grimy, Lord. We are always so surprised when we learn of a politician who seems to not be grimy. No, they seem like they might be a good one. We know how dirty it all can get. And yet, the sword itself The government itself, it's your grace to us. Because without it, as imperfect as it is without it, oh, what would we be? We would be nothing. We would rip ourselves to shreds. Thank you, God, that you have restrained evil through the state. And thank you that you provide a peaceful and quiet life. But Lord, through your son Jesus, you don't just restrain evil, you eradicate it. And through your son Jesus... You don't just give a peaceful and quiet life in the here and now, but you give peace and tranquility to the soul forever. So Lord, if there are people who are tossed to and fro 
here and there by the current events and by their frustration with the current president or the president before them or the president that's about to come into office or they're just frustrated by the elections or they're just frustrated by what's going on out in the world or they're frustrated because they can't deal with the world because their own world's falling apart. Wherever they're at, Lord, I just pray they would turn to you this morning and put their hope not in man, but in the God-man, Jesus Christ. That we would turn to you and we would submit to your perfect government of our hearts and souls. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. If you don't know the Lord Jesus and you would like to, I'd love to talk to you about it. You can email or text us at connect at seafordbaptist.com, but even better would be to talk to me before you leave today or to talk to our worship pastor, Ben Little. We would love to speak with you and to talk more about the gospel of Jesus and how to be a believer in him. Let's stand together and let's sing right now. Mr. Russ, would you go over to projection for me, please, sir? Thank you so much. This song talks, though, about where we do put our hope, how we put our hope in Christ, in his word, and our soul waits on him. When the enemy surrounds and my heart grows faint within, darkness overwhelms and my fears are pressing in I will trust in you O Lord in the silence I will wait I will stand upon your word you're my solid rock and my salvation my steadfast hope that won't be shaken my soul will my comfort when I feel forsaken, my refuge and my sure foundation, my soul will wait, my soul will wait for you. This is love I can't explain, this is mercy unreserved, through your sacrifice so great, I have peace and Undeserved, for the battle has been won. 
teaching and we'd love to have some men come and talk they're meeting here at the church 215 to leave should be back between 4 4 15 for the women's ministry Thursday November 2nd at 6 they are meeting at Tatum Davis's house there is an invitation ticket it's not required for entry but it does have her address on it so pick that up at the sign up table Christmas light work day we are approaching that time Saturday, November 4th, 9 to 5. Saturday, November 11th, 9 to 5. Come help get the, uh, the lights all ready to go. Obviously a big event. We're opening on Black Friday this year. It's my favorite time of year as well. Upward is coming up. I'm excited for the meal deal mainly. But Upward Evaluations next Saturday. They start uh, 9 to 12. If you can't make that one, uh, Monday from uh, at the six from six to nine. That's the following Monday uh, from six to nine. We are still in need of volunteers. So if you are willing to volunteer to coach uh, to ref, um, please come see us. We are we are full on on kids uh, for the boys. There are still a few spots left. If you know of any girls third through six, we do have some openings still that we would love to fill up just to get uh, enough teams in there. Uh, so if you um, are interested in coaching or helping out at all uh, in coaching, see Kim in the back. And if you're interested in uh, being a referee, see Bob Revia uh, after the service. And I believe that is it.
Thank you, Jeff. We are just going to wrap up with our offering prayer this morning. If you want to give, you can give at seafordbaptist.com slash giving. You can also give on the Church Center app. You can give through the mail. Or if you would like to give while you are here today on your way out as your final act of worship in this service this morning, you can give in the black box in the back uh, that is by the glass doors as you exit. And as we go, we want to be praying for Melody Warford and Pioneer Bible Translators, one of our missionaries. We like to pray for a missionary each week. So let's stand together. We're going to pray for her as well as a couple of other things going on in the life of our congregation as well as in our world. So let's go to the Lord together. Father, I thank you for everything that you provide for us. We get to do all sorts of ministry like Jeff has talked about, Lord, these announcements he's brought to us this morning, Lord. They represent ministry we're doing in your name and for your glory. So we thank you, God, that we can do this ministry, and we thank you for everything you provide through the giving of your people in order to do it. We could not do it, God, without the generosity that you stir up in the people of God. And so I pray that would continue, Lord, not for our sake, but for yours. We pray, Lord, as we close, just for Melody Warford, whose uh, our, our offering supports her every week, Lord, in her work with Pioneer Bible Translators. I pray you would bless her life, particularly during a time of transition. Continue to be with her, having lost her uh, mother in, in recent time, and that you would strengthen her heart. I also pray, Father, that you would be with her. She makes decisions about where ultimately she is to be a resident and where she is to live and I pray God that you would bless her work and the work of her colleagues and that the Bible would be translated into the heart language of every single people group on the face of this earth and then as a multitude of them believe Lord we long for you to return. God, we pray for fruit from our trunk or treat this weekend. We thank you, God, for hundreds that came through in our neighborhood, people that we reach out to, people we love. And I just pray, Father, that the lost of Seaford would come to know you and that seeds were planted both in, in children and in parents alike and that we would be able, through things like Upward, to continue to minister to these families and see people, God, come to Christ and to leave the world and to come, Lord, out of the world into the church by faith. Uh, Lord, we pray as we close for our Governor, um, Governor Yunkin, we ask that he would continue to stand for life. I thank you for the stance for life he has taken in our state and pray that it would continue on. I pray for wise counsel that would be around him, for good Christian people to be around him who would speak biblical truth to him, to give him uh, understanding and wisdom on how to lead going forward and give him godly leadership, God. I pray that he would be godly in his character and godly in his actions. And lastly, Father, I just pray for the witness of our church uh, this week. We will have lost people knocking on our doors, many of us, on Tuesday night. And I pray, Father, that we would be ready with Christian love, uh, Lord, certainly maybe with candy, with gospel tracts, Lord, uh, whatever, invitations to church. I just pray, God, that we would be ready to represent you well on the one night of the year that the lost come to our door. We lift all this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our choir is going to see us out with our benediction this morning.
gracious, gracious unto you. Amen. 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 Master.